Hello, everyone, and welcome. We are Irenacast. I'm Jeff. I'm Casey. On the first and third Tuesday of every month, we bring to you our perspectives on theology and culture from a post-evangelical lens. Thank you for joining us for another conversation to provoke your progressive Christian imagination. This week, Alan, Rajiv, and Bonnie are all on assignment because we are presenting to you, and I'm going to be on assignment for half of this episode. Uh, we're presenting to you a special uh, Pride issue, Pride edition of the podcast. Uh, as many of you have heard over the past couple of weeks, Casey was nominated for the Sacramento Pride Parade Grand Marshal and won, not only won, but literally decimated the competition. Like, I think he got like, what was it? 80% of the vote, Casey? I don't, I don't know if it was 80, but it was, it was was a lot. It was a lot. So, so Casey is going to share a little bit about that experience, share why Pride Month is important to him and all others in the LGBTQ community and should be important for us as allies. And then Casey is going to introduce an interview that he conducted a couple weeks ago that really is kind of fits into this theme. And uh, I don't want to spoil anything, but I want to get right into it. I'm going to do like a mini interview with Casey here and let him uh, tell his story over this last weekend. And then we're going to we're going to get into it. So, Casey, how are you doing after all that has occurred over the last week or so? Oh, my goodness. I'm exhausted, Jeff. I'm exhausted. (laughs) There were um, lots of pride festivities and getting everything set up was really a lot of work. And it was really good. Yeah. And also thinking about what I had to say. So I also had to speak on the main stage of Pride Parade and there were like 700 people. So that was scary. That's like the most people I've ever preached to. All right. That is that's a big that's a big crowd. So let's back it up a little bit. okay? I know we've talked about it on the show a little bit and we mentioned and we wanted to get people to vote for you and stuff like that. But what was your response when they said, Casey, you're nominated? When I was nominated, I was super surprised. You don't ever think you're going to get nominated for stuff like this, especially when it's just sort of the thing you do, right? It's just, it's what I love doing. So, because you don't um, campaign or anything, right? Like it's as out of the blue people nominate you. So, the way that this works is someone in the community has to nominate you. And so, one of the moms that is a part of the landing spot decided to nominate me. And so, she did it sort of without me knowing. You know, she just asked like, hey, what is a really good email for you? And so she sent it in. I had no idea. And then I got a phone call that was like, are you Pastor Casey? And I was like, absolutely. And they were like, you have been nominated to be the Grand Marshal of the Sacramento Pride Parade. And I was like, do you accept? And I'm like, well, sure, you know. Um, and then I was like, what will I wear to this event? Like, oh re- my God. I remember we had that conversation in one right. of our pre-recording things. And <laughs> you're like, what yeah, am I, gonna I wear? was like, what do you wear to a grand marshal uh, situation? So, so then I was, so then I sort of let it go. And, and so when they started voting, I had to, you know, measure up my competition. And there, there were some amazing, definitely qualified Grand Marshal nominations, you know, uh, one of the drag queens from RuPaul's Drag Race, an amazing activist in our community, Miss Leather, um, s- a few politicians. I mean, there were there were some amazing, gifted leaders that had been nominated, and so then I was like, well, I'm certainly not going to get this, you know, like, <laughs> well, that was sweet of someone to nominate me, but uh, that's it, you know. And so uh, when I got the phone call, Jose and I were actually in New York, just walking around. And I let it go to voicemail because that's what anxiety does. 
you know? <laughs> and so I listened and it said, uh, you know, hello, Pastor Casey, we're just calling um, to share some good news with you about, you know, the Sacramento Pride Parade and your potential of being Grand Marshal. Please call us back. And then I was like, oh, my God. So I called back and sure enough, they were like, you were the overwhelming uh, winner from the community. And uh, that was that was really touching. Yeah. Yeah. So you beat out like legit celebrities and legit like yeah. political leaders. Yeah. This, this this guy from from Northern California, pastor. Right. Yeah. That's right. And just for those of you that are listening, if you're listening for the first time or you didn't hear the conversation that Casey and I had uh, a few months back uh, just about his journey, I'm going to put that in the show notes. You should listen to that. Tell it, give it to your friends, listen to it because it's, it's Casey's story. And this is, this is a long time coming. And if you've listened to the show, even thus far in just this episode, you can hear and, and feel Casey's heart in terms of how he approaches the world and his attitude of trying to make the world a better place, despite how the world has treated him. So this is, this is really cool. And I remember just thinking like nonstop how excited I was when you said that you were nominated and the vote was happening every day. It was like, Oh, I wonder I'm going to go back and vote a little bit and see what's going on. And yeah, so that's, that's great. So how did the parade go? Cause it's, it's gone. It was this last weekend. Yeah, That's right. It was, it was on Sunday. It went really well. I didn't get much sleep that night, you know, because um, I'm thinking about what I'm going to wear, what I'm going to say, like, what kind of car will they put me in? These are all, you know, very important Grand Marshal things. Right. And what kind of car did they put you in? Um, They put me in, like, this little mini car. It's like a little... Like a Mini Cooper kind of thing? Ka- like kinda? one of those little European cars? Yeah, yeah. Oh. And, he, and I was like, I'm standing out the sunroof, you know? It, it was kind of weird, but it was fine. I um, was envisioning, like, a big old, like, Right, exactly. Pink Cadillac, like something. That's right. It was what it was, you know? Right, right. I'm right. just glad that I still wasn't 424 pounds because it, it would have looked like I like was filling that entire <laughs> car, you know? It would have been awful. Um, so, yeah. So, uh, so I got there really, really early because my parents wanted to come up to be there, which is also an amazing uh, thing to have them there to support me. And um, so we all wanted to walk over together to sort of figure out what was happening. And even upon my arrival, some of my uh, kids from the landing spot were there waiting for me and their parents. And sure enough, here comes some of my congregants. And uh, it was really moving because I sort of said, you know, guys, maybe you should sit this one out. Um, and to have them sort of step up and say, no, we really want to be with you to support you in this. It was really, really cool. And so uh, we walk over to the park together and it was very chaotic. But there was this one young man who was a volunteer who was like, Pastor Casey, I have been charged with just looking after you. So what do you need? I'm like, uh, water? I don't know, you know? And um, so I got the chance to just stand there with this young guy and hear of his own church experiences and wow um and i wore a collar on purpose so i decided what i for all of you who want to know what i decided on wearing <laughs> that was gonna be my I next wore, question so you beat me to i it. wore uh, my collar and um a shirt that said no matter who you are or where you are on life's journey you are welcome and um, that's something that my church says every sunday 
Yeah, it was really cool. Um, the kids, my, my young people were so, were so excited. But I also want to mention that some of my young people, there was a counter protest, um, that was happening at the same time. And some of my teens from the landing spot decided to go do that instead. So I had young people on both sides of this marching with me and protesting. It was, it was really cool, but they now, were there protesting. I, I want to kind of paint the picture because I think maybe some of our listeners think that they're protesting the parade itself. Right. No, uh, so, well, they so were, what, they were what, protesting the parade itself, but right. it wasn't crazy Christians. We'll start there. Okay. Um, yes. <laughs> these That's were, these, right. These were people in the queer community who were wanting to encourage the community, the gay, mostly gay and lesbian, cisgendered people community to recognize as, that as trans people, they feel unheard and unsupported. And time and time again, they are left out in the movement towards justice in the L- in the gay and lesbian community. And so some of my uh, young people, and also this is around uh, trans women of color specifically, they are murdered at a higher rate, addiction, suicide, uh, HIV infection, the lack of jobs, I mean, all of that. And so this was a real call or, you know, a- an attempt to wake up the community to say there are more of us here who feel unheard, you know? And so some of my kids, as I said, decided to protest with them and we were marching in the parade. And um, I saw so many faces of people I knew, which was really amazing. There was one woman who I saw who, when she saw me, just started crying. I didn't know her. And I just said, I said something like, you are loved. And she just yelled back, thank you. One of the first kids that came out to me as trans when I was at another church, who I actually started the landing spot for, he was there, unbeknownst to me that he was coming. And so he like started waving and I was like, get out here and walk with us. You know, this is a part of this is because of you, dude. It was just so cool. It was affirming. I mean, one of the things I was saying to you earlier, Jeff, is for me, ordination was really powerful. In that process, there were probably only about a hundred people or less that made that decision, right? A congregation, the people who walk me through the process, who interrogate me <laughs> uh, to make sure I'm a fit, you know? I mean, less than a hundred people make that decision. To have 4,000 people from every area of my life, right? From Irenacast to my hometown, for 4,000 people to affirm the work that I'm doing, and to affirm it as all of who I am, is really powerful. More Probably more powerful than ordination itself. I can imagine. That's amazing. Yeah. So to be riding in the car, that was, that was really, that's what that was, you know? A celebration. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And a celebration of the, the work that you've done with, with students and young people to help them avoid the pitfalls that you had to walk through during that time and see people be told at that crucial age, you know, I mean, Alan and I, when we started this podcast, we came out of youth ministry. Uh, A lot of us did. And, you know, knowing that we got into that in the first place, because adolescence is a weird, weird time. And, and then if you're, if you're part of the LGBTQ community, it can be, I'm sure a devastating time without the right right people in your life. Right. So, so yeah, that's amazing, man. I'm so glad. I'm so happy you got, you got voted in and you, you, you did the thing. And I know that it was a pretty chaotic day, but 
you came through and, you know, in, in this, this time of the month, as we celebrate pride, why, why is it important for us to celebrate pride? Why is it, you know, why is it important for not only obviously the LGBTQ community, but why is it important for, for us as allies to acknowledge pride and what should our posture be as we walk alongside you and the LGBTQ community during times like this? Right. You know, I, I don't know how many of you have seen Raj's post. That's like, uh, there are people who are saying things like there should be straight pride. Yeah. And, and Raj, and Raj posted this quote that said, um, if you want straight pride, you can go to any mega church any Sunday and you have straight <laughs> pride, you know? Right. Yeah. The reality is, is that when you live in a world that has strong norms, <laughs> strong assumptions about who you are and who you should be. That's a 365-day-a-year experience. Um, and for those of us who push up against those norms every day, who who either push up against them on purpose or or those expectations are pushed onto us, it can be exhausting. It can be sometimes humiliating. It can be hard. And to so and so to spend time celebrating our difference, celebrating um how far we've come in the last fifty years. I mean, the first pride was a riot at Stonewall, the Stonewall Inn, um, where trans women of color were tired of the police harassing them. Coming in those days you could walk into these gay bars, they weren't really gay bars, but these bars that served a certain clientele, <laughs> um, the cops could come in there and harass you, beat the hell out of you, take pictures of you and put them in the newspaper. And there was nothing, there were no repercussions for their behavior. You could lose everything. As we move forward, the truth is, is that we still have to fight for our lives. And for some of us, that is more serious. Sadly, those trans women of color 50 years ago who started this whole movement, it is trans women of color to this day who still experience uh, more violence or murder more than any other group of us in the LGBTQ community. The rate of uh, HIV infection, of suicide, all of those are still higher. Homelessness, job security, all of it. And so there is still a lot of work for us to do. So we pride to celebrate our differences, to celebrate that no matter what the world throws at us, we are beautifully and uniquely made. And there's nothing wrong with us. As we celebrate that, we also um, have to remember in our celebration that there are still some that, that are not ready to celebrate, that are still in mourning and grief. And we have work to do. So that's what I would say for all of us, LGBTQ, IA, and allies. There, We have a lot of work to do. And so we can celebrate, and you can celebrate with us, and remind us that we are loved, and that we are good, and that we are whole, just like everybody else in the world. And you can join us in the work for justice, to make a better world for all of us. Because the truth is, we do not rise unless we rise together. Gay marriage was not the end of the revolution. <laughs> In fact, for so many people, like, gay marriage was never the first option anyway. Harvey Milk, when people asked, should gay people get married? He laughed. 
He thought that was hilarious. So we had to do what we had to do to make people see that we could be normal. That was what marriage equality was all about. Look, we can live normative lives also. But there is still so much more to be done. Absolutely. So then as we kind of transition to the next part of this podcast, you sat down with Lawrence Richardson and had a great talk uh, with him. So why don't you kind of prep that? And before we get into that, anything that's mentioned in the the interview and anything that's been mentioned in this conversation right here will be in the show notes at irenacast.com slash 144. So that includes maybe, Casey, you wrote something down when you wrote your – what you spoke out, right? Maybe we can put that yeah. in the show notes as well. So people can kind I'd of see. That. Yeah. And then uh, we'll put links to all the articles that Casey's been involved in uh, leading up to the gay pride parade. And then uh, maybe the Facebook post that we re- recently posted with the video of him speaking. So we'll put all that in the show notes at irenacast.com slash 144. So Casey, take us into the interview that we're about to hear. Yes, Lauren Richardson. For those of you that also have listened to our uh, Enneagram podcast, he is a three. Um, he's, he's a wonderful pastor, a wonderful friend. Um, he is a trans African American pastor in the United Church of Christ. And he is a phenomenal preacher, an amazing leader. And so I feel honored to have sat down with him to talk about his book and to, um, hear him share what it is like to be a pastor and a trans man. So I hope you enjoy the episode. Sounds good. Then without any further ado, here is Casey's interview with Lawrence Richardson. Today, I am here with a great friend and colleague, Lawrence Richardson. He is a pastor uh, and, like I said, a good friend of mine. And so today, he has so graciously offered to spend some time with me talking about his new book, I Know What Heaven Looks Like, A Modern Day Coming of Age Story. So uh, Lawrence is a lead minister of Linden Hills UCC in Minneapolis. He's a graduate of St. Catherine University and Liberty Seminary, where he was trained in sociology, communications, pastoral care, evangelism, and Christian ministry. Uh, Lawrence has also completed a certification for anti-racism facilitating. He also does training with Our Whole Lives Sexuality Training. He's a church planter. He's into executive leadership and coaching. He's just all around an amazing pastor and friend. So Lawrence, thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me. I totally botched uh, all of your significant accomplishments. As a three, you have so many. I'm just so glad that you're with us today. And so um, I would just love for our listeners to get to, little, to know a little bit about you. So tell us a little bit about yourself. You're more than your accomplishments, Lawrence. So go ahead. Well, I grew up in the Midwest. I'm Midwesterner at heart. I love all the seasons, especially spring and fall. Those are my favorite. I am the oldest of three and two of us are queer and we come from a very conservative religious background and a family that is filled with uh, military service people and pastors and missionaries and uh, people that just have given their lives to 
serving the greater good. So for me, the work that I do in ministry and in executive leadership coaching and with writing uh, and traveling the world and getting to talk to really awesome people, it's all really an extension of the people who have come before me. Uh, And I feel like they just handed me the baton and I get to keep going. Uh, And this work will outlive me. And hopefully the dent that I make in it will be one that uh, once I'm at the end of my life, I will feel that I've done uh, everything that's in me to do. And so I just really feel privileged to get to connect with people and love people and learn about things and try to share what I learned with as many people as possible so that we can create the kind of uh, circumstances that uh, we all can thrive in and, and that we can pass on to our children and the next generation. That is beautiful. For anyone who's listening, now you understand why I'm just so amazed by this man, this wonderful person. Uh, yeah, passing on the baton. That's beautiful. It has been passed to you and you are doing great things with it, like writing a book. So tell me, tell me about writing this book. What led you to write this book? I Know What Heaven Looks Like is kind of a memoir. It's kind of a creative nonfiction piece. I like to think of it as a coming of age story, similar to uh, The Catcher in the Rye or The Perks of Being a Wallflower, in that the main character gets to experience life and grow up and there is nuance and conflict and there are lessons learned and the biggest lesson for me was self-acceptance and self-love but the journey began with the childhood trauma that I experienced and overcame my reconciling my gender identity as a transgender and queer identified person Uh, And also finding where I fit in in the context of a predominantly white Midwestern town as a Black queer person. So the book is really about my journey through all of those things. And I started writing it, I would say, before I knew I was writing it, uh, because writing was something that I did to kind of give myself the freedom to process and dream and also to communicate my feelings. Uh, I did not have a childhood that was free of violence. And so because of that, I learned to keep a lot in and writing was the way that I got things out. And so I started writing at a very early age and turning those pieces of poetry and story into art and really thinking about how I can play around with those words to communicate feelings or to express things uh, in really creative ways. And so writing has been a part of my life for a long time. And I always knew I was going to write a book because of the lessons I've learned and because of everything that I've gone through. I didn't know that the book would be called what it is until uh, about two years ago. The reason why uh, it's titled I Know What Heaven Looks Like is because For a large part of my life, I was always told that I was going to hell. I was condemned to hell for whatever issue or sin I was being judged by, whether it was my gender identity or how I expressed myself or my sexual orientation. I was always told from the adults, mainly in my church and in my family, that I was going to hell. And so because of the trauma and the violence that I experienced uh, as a result of that, 
There was some conversion therapy. There was some exorcisms. Uh, there was a lot of violence oh, done man. to me <laughs> to try to change who I am. And so I felt like if all of that was done to prevent me from going to hell, then I must be very qualified then to know what heaven is actually like. Because if heaven is the opposite of hell, and I experienced all the suffering that I did and made it through, then that must be heaven. That's and right. so I, I titled the book, I Know What Heaven Looks Like, because I made it through all the suffering that should have killed me. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. Actually, today, I was at a junior college talking to a, a room full of young adults about being a gay pastor. And the questions always go back to religious trauma for the people just sitting in the room um, who are triggered by my own experience as someone who has had people try to cast demons out of them and anoint their doors with you know oil and all of this stuff just because they thought that I was going to rot in hell. I was an abomination, much like yourself. And one of the questions that one of the young people asked today was, why do you stay faithful? I had to walk away. It was too painful for me to stay. And so maybe I would love to hear your response to that. As, as I know your story from the time that we've spent together, and as you've laid out in your book, you have experienced quite a lot of trauma, but you still seem to be committed to carrying on this baton of kindness and love in a tradition, by the way, that in so many places has told you that you're not welcome. And I think for a lot of our listeners, they too have been on that journey. For a lot of people who listen to this podcast, either they have been the one being told that they are not welcome, or they have seen other people tell, you know, maybe friends of theirs or family that they're not welcome. The question, I guess, is to you, uh, why stay? You know, I learned early on the difference between God and the church. Yes. And so the church is comprised of fallible human beings, whereas God, in terms of how I believe God to be, is an infallible source of energy that is neither good or bad. And so if I think of God separately from the church, I can separate the actions from imperfect people and to really just cast them aside as that. Not every group of people knows everything or has the monopoly on God or even understands God. And if you think about even the tradition that I come from, the Black church, the Black church was started out of the institution of slavery. So how life-giving and freeing is it supposed to be in its foundation, right? It was supposed right. to marginalize me. It was supposed to degrade me and diminish me uh, because that was what it was established to do. It was established to keep people in bondage by promising them some sort of freedom after this life. Well, right. I learned that God had just as much freedom and abundance and love for me in this life and that I didn't have to wait until some sort of afterlife and I didn't have That's to right. suffer through this life to get there, that I really could just make a series of choices and create the circumstances and conditions for my life that allowed me to thrive and experience love and loving connections. And so once I realized that, then it became a matter of just disconnecting from people who didn't want the best for me and disconnecting from people who did not honor the God that's in me and, and did not want me to flourish because of whatever identities I hold. And so 
once I was able to separate myself from the church and understand that I had a calling from God to really know God, learn God, and to share the love that I felt from God with others, then it became a mission of mine to not just right the wrongs, so to speak, of my past, but to introduce people to the God that I knew and to show them the kind of God that was loving and embracing and all-encompassing and not one that was judgmental or angry or violent. And so it was like a really huge theological shift for me, but it was also an opportunity for me to get to know God for myself apart from the God that others were trying to force upon me. I think that there are so many of us that have to sort of unlearn before they can they can return, right? It's it's that sort of deconstruction piece of I have to I have to unlearn some stuff. I have yeah. to sort of uh, let go of some stuff before I can return to this because there's no way to move forward without having to unlearn or get rid of some of the stuff that we have been told. You know, I appreciate you talking about growing up in the black church and recognizing that the, these were tools used to oppress, right? We continue to see Christianity um, used to not liberate and not set people free, but rather hold them down. And especially as a pastor, I mean, I'm sure there are lots of people that you encounter in your own community that you're having to walk them through the process of unlearning. Absolutely. And for me, the unlearning is the easy part because it's a matter of believing that God loves you or believing that God hates you. Believing that God affirms you for who you are or believing that God needs you to change in order to love you. That part is actually easy. The hard part is once you believe that God loves you and once you accept that God loves you as you are, now what? Now you have to heal. Now you have to go through all your junk and throw away the stuff that you were told that wasn't right. Now you have to like overcome the barriers that were, like there's a lot of things that, that come after that. And so for me, I love being a pastor because the message, the gospel, the good news that death doesn't have the final say that we don't know all there is and that there's more to life than this. That's exciting for me. And the part about making space for people and getting to walk alongside them as they figure out who they are in God and what they are called to do uh, and, and how they can live and flourish in this life apart from expectations of others. Like that is, is so fun for me, but that's challenging because that's yeah. life. Like that's hard. Yeah. And that that's like getting in the, the thick of things. And that's the part that fuels me the most about being a pastor because I know how much I had to overcome and there are people out there who don't always have someone to walk alongside them. And so it's an honor for me to walk alongside someone when they're going through life or going through finding who they are in God. It's just an honor. Right. And and I really do think that as progressive Christian clergy, our motive should be life. Our message should be life. I kind of concluded today, I felt like I just took the pulpit at the junior college because I just sort of said, you know, um, the Jesus that I know, the one that I follow is about life. I've come so that you may have life and have it abundantly. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus was more interested in how we lived than anything about dying. And so I really do see myself as one who is inviting people into the fullness of life. 
And the only way to have that fullness is to be able to articulate truly what your needs are, who you really are, and to be able to to live from that place of self-acceptance and honesty. That's the only way to that sort of true living, that true way to life. Um, I, I said today, like, there are traumatic stories in this room from the LGBT people who are speaking to you today. Many of us have had major trauma, whether that be from our religious context or the violence in our homes because of us coming out. But I don't think there's anyone in the room who would say that they were sorry for making the decision to come out. Because on the other side of that, of that closet door is the wholeness of life. That's right. And you know, now, uh, Lawrence, as you've talked about being an African-American queer lead pastor, you're in charge. This is a long time coming. I mean, what does that look like for you? Just in, in yourself, in Lawrence, I, I wonder about your own saboteur inside of you, you know, all of, all of those moments. How do you navigate that? I grew up with a very amazing grandmother who was my first pastor, even though she wasn't technically a pastor because the tradition that we were in, but she was my first pastor and she showed me how to pastor. The qualities that she instilled in me were authenticity, consistency, faithfulness, integrity, and much, much more. But I hold on to that and I understand that I am imperfect And I understand that we're all learning. And I also understand that I have been given an opportunity to use my gifts and skills and talents to empower other people. And so when I think about it like that, then there is no hierarchy. I might be lead pastor in title, but my job is really to facilitate gatherings and worship experiences and to empower people to live their best lives, which means that they could go off and run a country or a fortune 500 company or a family or a classroom, but whatever it is, I'm empowering them in a sense to be greater than me. I give them what I have, but the hope is that then it multiplies because they have something that I don't have. And so I am a servant leader. I am very happy to be the lead minister, but I'm not really concerned about titles because It's really about my calling, and my calling is to be a pastor to this community. And what that means and what that looks like, obviously, it varies from person to person, from season to season throughout the liturgical year. But the title lead minister or lead pastor, I I don't think it really does anything more than it needs to, uh, because I, I need to always remember who I am and where I've come from. And I descended from former slaves who made their way north to escape racial terrorism, who had nothing, who started over, who made a life for themselves in a predominantly white state and were entrepreneurs and leaders and advocates and and did all of these wonderful things, but only by the grace of God. So whatever the title I have, honestly, uh, it's only by the grace of God that I'm here. And so I just, I, I love what I do and I love who I serve. The only title it sounds like you need is Beloved. Thank you. What I hear you saying is, I come from descendants who passed down a torch to me. And what it sounds like is you see your role as one who continues to help others carry their torch or ignite it for them. That's right. And I really appreciate you saying, you know, pastors are not perfect. I think that 
for all of us, one of the things that we have to do is recognize the leaders in our life who've let us down and acknowledge that either they were doing the best they could or that they, they're just as screwed up as us. <laughs> and to find, find, find some forgiveness in ourselves for those people who haven't always been the best that they could be. So talk to me about this book in terms of what was, what was the best part? What was the most fun part writing about? Because I, I was digging into it today and I was reading about, you know, this first encounter with a boy and that was that I was kind of like, oh, hey, this is intense. And it progresses from there. And I don't want to ruin anything. But I felt like you, I mean, you revealed a lot. You, you <laughs> put your heart out there, I guess is what I'm saying. And, you know, I, we're about the same age. And so talking about, you know, having to use your uh, landline phone and stuff, it, I, it, was, it was cracking me up. But, so tell me, what was, the, what was the most fun part to write about? Honestly, the first chapter, there is a masturbation scene. The first time that I recall masturbating. Now, I'm sure I masturbated before then, but I was a little kid, right? And so little kids are always pulling and touching and squeezing things because they're trying to get to know their bodies. And so it, right. it's not at all supposed to be sexualized. It, it's really supposed to show um, the depth of innocence that children experience, like when you're just exploring and, and sometimes you explore your bodies. And so the most fun I had was really that first chapter because the first scene is me having a dream about church and then it ends with me masturbating in church. And so, oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and so it's kind of fun because if you can make it past that first chapter, then you pretty much understand what kind of person and pastor I am. Like what you see is what you get. I'm going to tell you what I feel, how it is. I'm going to of course do it in love and might have some humor, but I'm not going to pretend to be something other than I'm, than I am. And I'm not going to sugarcoat. And I think um, it was fun to write that in there because I feel like if you have a book that's titled, I know what heaven looks like, people are going to assume that it's either like really, really churchy uh, or it's going to be like really judgy. And I want it to kind of open it up with a, it's none of those things. You actually right. have to read it to experience it for yourself. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's great. I appreciate that also because I think that one of the places that people feel like they can talk about sex the least is church. And so where does that leave us <laughs> as a society? I mean, the only ones who are actually talking about church are the very people who told us that our bodies were disgusting and bad and sex is terrible and awful until you're married. And then magically, all of a sudden, it's supposed to be great. And it's only meant for that one special person. And that's all you really hear about. I mean, I remember growing up as an evangelical kid. And when we talked about masturbation, the only thing they said was don't. Or if you do, you have to tell some adult in your youth group, which was, seemed always so bizarre to me that teenage boys were sharing their masturbation stories with grown adults. I mean, I think that as queer pastors, one of the things that we bring is the ability to talk about sex and not have it be taboo. Absolutely. Um, I don't know about you, but when I came out, it seemed like everyone all of a sudden wanted to talk to me about the most crazy stuff that they had done because they saw me as deviant. So it was like all of a sudden safe for them to share their most deviant experiences with me, which kind of took me off guard. You know, I didn't expect that. But then I felt like it became sort of like confession or like a holding ground 
for me to begin to hold the space for people, especially my straight women friends um, who felt like they had no one else they could talk to um, and to begin to hear those stories. And some of them were really funny, but some of them were sort of like, that wasn't safe or that person wasn't listening to you. I mean, I know that as a young man, I had it sort of weird um, growing up evangelical, but women had it way worse because we talked about masturbation, but they, from what I've heard from my women friends, they don't even really talk about sex in those small groups. They talk about don't tempt, you know, the men in your life, stay pure and chaste, all of these things that are not helpful at all. But if we are honest, we would admit or acknowledge that, and you alluded to this before, you know, a large part of religion is used by leaders in society as a means for population control. And the more fundamentalist and the more out there, (laughs) you know, the stricter and and the more limiting the life is that you're able to lead. And so I, I think that for lesser evolved and lesser educated folks, there's a lot of superstition and fear uh, and there's a lot of things that are unknown. And so it's just easier to try and control the people in your midst or in your family by telling them all of the things that could possibly go wrong if you left the house or if you uh, had sex before marriage or if you masturbated, right? But if we think about what education has done, sex education, anatomy and physiology, what we know about the hormone levels in our bodies and what happens when those hormones are released at certain times. Like these are things that not everybody has access to. And unfortunately people who are very, very, very religious, but don't have access to education in other ways, they're limited and they, I, I believe overcompensate and they do the best they can. We all do. Right. But you only know what you know. And if you don't know that, Jesus never talks about masturbation, (laughs) but you learned it in church. You're going to believe that somewhere in the Bible, Jesus said something about masturbation, but that's actually not really true. But if these folks don't have the education or the foundation to even learn these things, and they're just recycling things that they've heard or maybe made up in their own minds, um, and that gets to be problematic. And I also think about in terms of, again, I'll go back to the black church, Um, The Black church was a mechanism to continue oppressing folks and limiting uh, the opportunities that people had. And so then when white ministers started to ordain Black ministers, these ministers did not go through seminary. Most of them were not allowed to go through seminary. They were not allowed to be educated. So if you don't go through seminary, you have not had any formal education, and yet you've somehow convinced quote-unquote master that you're worthy of being a pastor or a minister of this church, then that sets up a whole different kind of dynamic. And you now have this power and authority, but you don't actually have the knowledge to support that authority. And so I think of a lot of wrong has been done by the church. And I think a lot of it is because of either miseducation or no education. I don't fault the people who literally could not go to school because it was illegal for them to be educated in these spaces. Um, I don't fault them for wanting to take opportunities to learn about the Bible and to lead and to start churches or to minister in churches. 
because that was the avenue of power that they had at that time. But what I do know is that now that Black people, and I'm only talking about Black people because I'm Black and I can't talk about other people's experiences that I haven't lived, uh, but now that Black people can legally go to school and legally learn how to read, then there is no reason that there is any pastor who is African-American who has not gone through either seminary or some sort of academic training. And we find that the ones who have tend to now be more progressive as they now learn how to read the Bible in its context and learn about the society in which the Bible was written over thousands of years. But those who don't have that privilege of education, they tend to be the ones that believe the Bible more literally and believe that creation was in seven literal days and, you know, that one person wrote the, wrote the whole Bible or whatever they might believe. But I think we're talking about class and we're talking about access and we need to separate religion from this idea of God because it's the study of God, but it is not mandated by God. Spirituality, however, that's different. We all have this connection to some power beyond ourselves. And I think that is what we need to now focus more on, less religion and more spirituality. Something that you said that really it's ruminating in me is these African-American people who were given the title of pastor, who had no access to education, are just using the tools that they have been given. That's right. And who gave them the tools? <laughs> That's right. right. That's right. So they're perpetuating this oppression. That's right. They have no idea. The very tools that they have been given um, are the very tools that continue to oppress them. And what is fascinating about this is that I believe that some of the African American pastors today who are more learned, who have had educational experiences beyond perhaps. Uh, Sunday school or beyond interning with their senior pastor, I believe they know that they learned some things about religion that cause oppression. I believe they know that they have limited views. And I believe that some of them perpetuate it because they can. For example, I would be very surprised if the average African-American pastor of a church that has more than 200 people and whatever their denomination is, it's not specific to denomination, but if that specific church had rules against women in ministry, I would be surprised if that pastor did not know that there was women's rights movements and that there were organizations that work to empower women. Like, I would be really surprised that they didn't know that. So we know that these things exist, and yet we choose to not use them. And I think that, again, they make these choices because they can. If these pastors know that misogyny is real and yet have churches where women can't preach, they're making that choice to have a church in which women can't preach and yet wonder why women don't get equal pay, why women have to fight for the right to their own bodies, why they, you know, like, it's not rocket science, science, but we can't uphold patriarchy if we dismantle the very religions that perpetuate it. Amen. That's right. 
I mean, and this goes for everything, right? Racism too. We have to be able to talk about the shit um, and how this country was formed from its very beginning and how wealth was acquired, who had it, who didn't, how it was made. I mean, there's a lot of confessing that has to be done in order for us to uh, dismantle a system that is deeply rooted in our society. Um, So it's not just sexism. It's racism. I mean, it's all there. Homophobia, it's all there. I know that this is a little off topic, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on Morehouse College saying that they will now welcome uh, trans men into the community. That makes me really happy, actually, because Morehouse College is the only African-American college for men in in the nation and for them to recognize trans men as men is huge because we are men. I'm a trans man and I can tell you that I've always wanted to go to a historically black college and that made me excited. Like I was thinking about what program can I enroll in just so that I can say I went there. So there's going to be a lot of black trans men, I believe, who enroll in college specifically because of this and maybe they wouldn't have had this not happened so lawrence where do you find god everywhere inside of me all around outside of me in in joy um when i laugh um when i'm feeling absolute despair in death in birth everywhere like god literally is everywhere and it took me a while to to realize that when I was younger and going through a lot of the trauma that I went through, I thought that God was literally in the sky, like in some far off place in the clouds. And if I just prayed hard enough and closed my eyes, I might be able to see him. Well, then I learned that God wasn't a person. (laughs) Exactly. 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 I learned that God wasn't a person, wasn't an old white man with a beard in the sky. And then once I learned that, then it was like, oh, if God isn't some person living in the clouds and God is in me and all around me and God is spirit, then that means that spirit is in everything that's living and moving and breathing and that is. And so that means the trees and in you and in me everywhere. Like I I can find God everywhere. And that's good news for people who maybe are listening to this podcast and entering a church building is too painful. For anyone who is not ready to take that step or can't make that step, to know that God is never far from you. In fact, God is right within you. That's right. God is within each of us. And the beauty of church community, whether it's online or in person, is that when we are in relationship with other people, we get to connect with that God in them and they connect with the God in us. And it's like, we're fine tuning, like iron sharpens iron. If I'm just by myself all the time, I don't grow and I'm not challenged to grow. But if I'm engaging someone, then it it, it forces me to take a look at what I believe, how I act, how I live in the world. And so community is really important and Christian community is even more important for other Christians because it helps us walk our talk. Mm, Say more about that. Well, I think it's easy to be um, a career Christian. And what I mean by that is in your mind, you believe you're a Christian because maybe you grew up as Christian or your parents are Christian or you were Lutheran. So now you're Lutheran. But 
it's harder to say I'm Christian. You because use, I you use Lutheran because you're in Minnesota. <laughs> yes, that's absolutely right. That's right. Lutherans everywhere. All but these I'm white Lutherans. Baptist, so, you know, <laughs> but, you know, it, it's harder to say what you believe as a result of what you have thoughtfully questioned and what you have uh, analyzed in your own life. Uh, and I think that a lot of people are either Christian or atheist not because they have taken time to learn these different religions and learn who they are in relationship to these different things and then come out on the other side and say, how do I want to live? I think a lot of people are either Christian or atheist in response to what they have witnessed other Christians in the world doing. So they say, yeah. oh, if that's Christian, then I'm not that. I am more interested in who we are instead of who we are not. And so if I say I'm Christian, uh, it's because I literally have studied world religions and out of all of them, the story of Jesus and the message of Christianity is the most compelling for me. And I also affirm Buddha and the story of Buddhism, but I don't know enough about Buddhism to say I'm a Buddhist, but there are some things that I do that are Buddhist. Uh, So I say I'm Buddhist, right? Um, uh, But (laughs) for the context of Christian community, I need to practice these things. Like I can memorize theories and prayers and uh, litanies, but if I don't get a chance to live them out, then what makes me a Christian? And so for me, being a part of Christian community, even if I wasn't a pastor, if I am in community with people, that means I'm showing up for them I'm listening even when I don't agree. Uh, I'm finding resolution in the midst of conflict. I'm always uh, working for the greater good. I'm always thinking about myself in relation to them. And that, that's a different kind of life. When you live yeah. constantly thinking of others, it's different than if you're living constantly thinking of only yourself. And so for me, especially as a Christian, Community is important because it forces me to embody all of the values I say I believe. Right. One of the things that I think I would love to hear you reflect on is, you know, there are some people who have heard, who have heard this message of don't live for yourself. As a Christian, you're living for others. You have that servant's heart. But that has been a tool of manipulation and of abuse. And so how do we strike that balance between um, offering of ourselves and being fully present to our neighbor and also acknowledging that we have needs and the way that we look after ourselves and the way that we view ourselves is just as important. If you can't love yourself, how in the hell are you going to love anybody else? Right. I mean, that's from St. RuPaul, but, uh, Amen. <laughs> you're right though. And I think of like, you know, and I fly a lot. And so, you know, I think about when you put on your own oxygen mask first. You cannot help people if you're not breathing. If you cannot breathe, if you aren't alive, if you you can't be of use. And so to be a servant leader, it doesn't mean that you're a doormat. Like you you're still a leader. Like you're not just a servant, you're a servant leader. You serve, but you also lead. So then to be a leader, you have to be an example. And if you know, you're rested and you have boundaries and you have days off and you take vacations, then people will see you as a leader. But if you're someone who is just kind of like, oh, I'm being pulled in every direction and I don't know up from down and I'm just so overwhelmed, like that's not leading. 
that's bleeding and, and that's not effective. And so I think a lot of pastors, especially we, we hear about pastor suicide a lot. Um, and I think it's because we inherited this message that we have to be everything and hold it all and do it all. And that's not really the case. I mean, think about Jesus. If we go back to the original person who inspired all of this, he took breaks. He went out to pray. He, he I mean, I was, he went to go party. Yeah. He, and he, I mean, if you turn water into wine, that means you wanted some, right? Like, <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> you know? that's right. And so I think, like, I wouldn't call the 40 days in the wilderness a vacation, but if I had disappeared for 40 days, it would take me the first four days to, like, make peace with the fact that I cannot check my email. Like that. <laughs> right. You know? That's right. And so I, I think about, like, Jesus modeled for us what healthy servant leadership looks like. He gave his all, but he also took care of himself. That's right. Thank you for that. So we've had a really good conversation um, bouncing off what was the fun part of this book, but what was the hardest part to write about? Oh, I would say all of the traumatic experiences, like every memory that I experienced of abuse and neglect and torture growing up, I worked really hard in several years of therapy to be able to think of those things and to not have a visceral reaction. Uh, But it was different to write out the details and then to write out the details. And I had a, a group of people who workshopped the book with me. So I'd write a chapter and they'd read it and deconstruct it and tell me different things. That was hard because I just wanted that part to be done. I didn't want to relive it. And so then I'd write out a traumatic experience and then the group would workshop it and say, give us a little bit more or tell us what this felt like or what did this sound like or, you know, whatever. And that would be hard because they wanted to feel what I was feeling in that moment, but I didn't want to feel what I was feeling in that moment. But in order for me to explain it to them in a way that a reader could feel it, I had to go back in to myself and I had to relive those experiences and then to write about them. That was the hardest part. I'm sure. I wonder for anybody who's listening, who has, who has had some of these hard experiences, um, what would you tell them as they're, they're going through this book? I mean, obviously therapy, obviously, you know, doing that hard work, but what are some other tips for people who maybe are just starting on the journey? that there is so much beauty in the world and you just have to look for it. And that there are people who are good and that you are lovable and that you are worthy. And no matter how bad it gets or no matter how bad it has gotten, that you're still here, which means it's an opportunity to make something good happen. Um, and I also will say, don't stay anywhere that you aren't welcomed yeah. or received for all of who you are. And I know that, especially for younger folks, that's hard to hear because no one wants to be homeless or without a family or without a spouse or without a whatever you have to leave behind. And that is hard. It's hard to leave anything behind. And there was period of a couple of years where I had to leave a lot behind and that's lonely and it's painful and it's scary and it's terrible. But if you believe that there's something else out there, then it will get you through that time to the other side and it will, you know, help you 
search out those people who are good and help you surround yourself with different folks who actually uh, want the best for you. And it's just, it's, it's a process. It took me seven years to get to the place where I could say, I never want to be anywhere where I am not received. Hmm. Before that, I had to fit in or I would be so disappointed if I didn't or whatever. And now it's like, you know, I'm me. I can't change to make anybody happy. And if someone can't love me for me, then they're just not the person for me. And whether that's family or a stranger, it's been a long time coming, but it is now very easy for me to say, I don't even have to show up if I'm not interested. Like I just don't even have to go there. And when you know that you have full control over your own life, You don't have to please anyone. And I know, especially with family and parents, it's so hard. We want to please people. We don't even have to please them. Like, what's the worst that can happen? We disappoint them and they're disappointed and they die disappointed. Guess what? We still live. And that was a hard lesson for me. But that's what I would say to you is get through all of the BS and get to the other side because there is something else. You know what heaven looks like. That's right. So Lawrence, is there uh, anything else that you would want to share with our our listeners? I've really enjoyed this conversation. I'm grateful for not only your leadership, but also your friendship. You are a real gift to the church and to me. And I hope that some of our readers will pick up your book because I know they will be inspired and touched and hopefully it'll invite them to live out their most authentic truths. Well, thank you. And thank you for the opportunity to be on this podcast. And I will say, you know, the the last thing I'll say is that uh, no one person or system or religion has the answer. There are a lot of questions and there are a lot of answers. And we just find what fits for us in the season that we're in. And that's all we can do. And, And so what that means is that if no one person or religion or system has the answer, then that means they're all equal. No one is better or worse than the other. Islam is not better than Christianity or Christianity is not better than Judaism. Like we're all searching and we're all living and we're all on the journey. And and we all just need to learn how to live together and how to coexist and how to hold multiple truths simultaneously. Beautiful. Well, that will do it for us this week. Uh, you can follow me, Casey, at um, Rev Tinnen on Twitter or the Queerly Faithful Pastor uh, on Instagram. And I also have a website, thequeerlyfaithfulpastor.com. Uh, Lawrence, how can people find you? I am on Twitter at Larry under uh, two underscore zero. Uh, my website is www.ltrichardson.com. Or you can find me on Facebook at Lawrence Tanner Richardson. As for Irinacast, don't forget to subscribe to the show and never miss an episode. We are available on all major podcasting platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and many more. And while you're there, if your platform allows it, leave us a rating and or review. We are always looking for more and more ways to hear from you. You can also fill out a listener survey at irenacast.com slash survey. Information you give is super helpful for us as we move forward and continue to evolve the show. That's irenacast.com backslash survey. This is Casey, and we hope that you have a great week. Take care, everyone.